from the front lines of the green rush. This is Green Entrepreneur, where business owners talk about how they found success in cannabis and how you can too. Hey everybody, welcome to the Green Entrepreneur podcast. I'm Jonathan Small, Editor-in-Chief of Green Entrepreneur, and I am delighted to be joined by my friend and colleague, Nick Gallen, who is the Editor-in-Chief of our content partner, MarijuanaRetailReport.com. And Nick just had a really interesting conversation with Tim Blake, which we are about to share with you in a moment. Nick, what can you tell us about Tim Blake? So Tim uh, is the founder of uh, Emerald Cup, the Emerald Cup, an annual competition held in Northern California at the Santa Rosa Fairgrounds. Honestly, one of the legacy players in the cannabis space. Mm -hmm. He grew it from literally just a small farmer, competition farmer in the Emerald Triangle to the the scale and scope that it is today. Yeah. I mean, people go to the Emerald Cup literally for the latest genetic drops, trying to find the latest and greatest in flavorings, as well as find the best products currently on the market. And honestly, just one of the nicest people you could ever hope to meet, you know, talking with him about things like regenerative farming practices, sustainable practices here in the cannabis industry as it relates to packaging. He has a true pulse with the heart of the industry. You know, he creates the culture of cannabis. I feel, and honestly, one of the coolest people uh, you could ever hope to meet. Um, yeah. So I highly recommend everybody go check out uh, the Emerald Cup. Right now, the Emerald Cup obviously had to be put on hold this year because of uh, COVID, right? But uh, yes. you guys talk about that. Well, it was slightly put on hold. So uh, they pushed it back slightly and they're doing a virtual cup right now. The virtual cup is currently running. They have you know judges doing Zoom meetings in order to do their uh, taste sessions. And they're looking to uh, launch their consumer facing portion of the Emerald Cup with their new social media and digital media partner, which uh, we'll talk about in the, uh, the interview. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. So without further ado, we bring you Nick's interview exclusively for Green Entrepreneur with Tim Blake. So Tim Blake, founder of the world-renowned Northern California Cannabis Consumer Event, the Emerald Cup, and also co-founder of the Mendocino Farmers Collective, as well as Healing Harvest Farms Dispensaries. He's also a founding member of the California Cannabis Reform Policy, as well as a founding member of the Mendocino Cannabis Policy Council, and has been active in both cannabis advocacy, as well as both the industry in one way or another for over 30 years. Tim, so nice to be able to talk to you today. Oh, I'm honored. I uh, had a couple of great conversations with you, Nick. I think you're doing some great work yourself, and uh, it's a pleasure to have the time. Wonderful. So let's just start at the beginning of kind of your journey in, in the cannabis industry. You know, you kind of started out working in the traditional industry, different production companies throughout the 80s. But then in 1998, you bought an old campground called Area 101, which became the birthplace of the Emerald Cup. And I'm kind of curious what was the drive to originally buy that campground and kind of leave the traditional market? Well, I'd already left the traditional market. I'd, you know, I was in Canvas my whole life. So I came up here and got the property across the street from Area 101 a number of years earlier. And uh, I was doing some pretty large illegal indoor farms on there. And the people across the street, this old uh, campground and little store and uh, it had uh, you know, a lot of stuff going on, a gas station and whatnot. It had been run down. There had only been three owners over 120 years. And the guy died, gave it to his daughter. 
and she had a bunch of crankers living there. And uh, they called it the home of the night people. That's what the county did. If they had probation violations, they'd go there first. And the year before I bought it, they had, you see, they had explosions. They had a couple of uh, attempted rapes, robberies, crank labs going off. I mean, you name it. And so I just needed to get those people out of there. And I got the chance to buy it. It wasn't called Area 101 at the time, but it fell to me and I was able to purchase that. And uh, it was because they were had to get the gas tanks cleaned up. And back then, MTBE was a big additive in the gas. And um, they needed to get that out of there because it was toxifying. They were trying to clean the gas up and it was actually making an environmental disaster throughout the state. So uh, it was costing about $100,000 to $300,000 for each uh, gas station to clean up. And I meditated for 50 years and I got my prayers that uh, I'd be okay. So I put 45000 bucks up and had the testing done and told the owner that I'd probably lose the money because it was probably going to be a couple hundred thousand to clean up the site. It wasn't going to be worth it, but I wanted a great deal on it. So it turned out to be the cleanest site in California, somehow miraculously. And I got the place for 175000 bucks because uh, she needed to get it done and I got a good deal. So that's how I got Area 101. I had to go in there and I spent two years getting rid of all the crank freaks and cleaning up all the garbage. They've been trading uh, dump space for crank. And uh, it took me two years, $25,000 in dump fees and 10 or 15 dumpsters to get out of there and uh, clean it up so I could actually start over with uh, the new place called Area 101, home of the Emerald and Cup. What, what was the what was the impetus that actually made you want to start the Emerald Cup at that site? You know, with all the venues and, uh, you know, all the places you could do it, I know that you had a connection to the Northern California growing community. But what was that trigger that actually made you say, hey, you know, let's get together. Let's try to figure out what is the best way to make this industry real. Well, what happened was, that, you know, Area 101 is right on the highway, right on 101, 10 miles north of Laytonville at the base of Spyrock Mountain. So it's at least for the Mendocino County, it's the heart of the, the cannabis farming area, the old outlaw country. And so we were doing a lot of business there. I was growing across the street. I had a lot of people coming in and out. And we were just talking about how we wanted to have a celebration of the fall harvest and a family competition. And why don't we just do it? And uh, my place fit. It was right there. I was crazy enough to be willing to say yes and go for it. And uh, the next thing you know, we're, you know, we're putting up bands and getting everything together and putting a competition together and, and we just did it even though most people thought we'd be arrested and uh, and most of the people that showed up were in masks or disguises or whatnot and uh, people that won the first and third didn't even show up to get their prizes and uh, <laughs> we actually pulled that off but it was, it was a pretty ballsy thing for back then because people were still going to prison for long long periods of time so looking back on it God, that was kind of crazy but I've always been a little bit eccentric so it didn't matter. Well, you know, looking back because it's been years since the Emerald Cup first started, one of the most prestigious events in the world, be it in cannabis or not. When you're taking a look at at the years since you started the event first at Area 101, what is your fondest memory across all that time? Well, probably the, the first year because it was just so organic and it was unbelievable that we were even trying to pull something off and it was just larger than life that we actually just went for it. Uh, that's a really, a really tough one. But Another one would be when they busted the 9.31 program where you could grow 99 plants legally and they and they took that out. The feds came in and they threatened to arrest us all. And people were telling me not to do the cut that year. It was about nine years ago and 10 years ago. And uh, I was going to cancel the cup. And then I just figured, no, fuck it, we're going to just go for it. We're just going to do it anyway. And that's when all the lawyers came up from the Bay Area. All the activists came up and it really bonded together the whole Bay Area and California scene with all the farmers up here. And they stood tall with us. All these lawyers were there waiting for them to come bust us. And we just went for it. My girl at the time and I just went ahead and produced that cup there. And it was really a uniting moment for the whole community across the state. And then, of course, going to uh, Santa Rosa and uh, uh, that first year of legalization where we realized that 64 had passed, that was a pretty big year, too. 
there's a lot of big well, years in there. I'll tell you what, every year at the Emerald Cup is a special year. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's definitely uh, one of the most special event that I've ever been to. I mean, I just attending, you know, I hitting that leaf blower <laughs> and ending up on the LA Times. I mean, that that's my personal fondest memory. But the camaraderie at the Emerald Cup is literally unheard of at any other consumer event. It, you know, it's just like one big family. And, and, you know, you working with your daughter, I think, helps facilitate that. But when you were building the event and starting to grow it, how did you manage to maintain that type of environment even as you expanded? Well, it helped that I didn't care about making any money. So the whole thing was about putting on the best show for the people and for my, my family and my, my community. And so we always went and spared no expense in bringing the best food in. It was always an organic competition, but the food was always organic. Back in Area 101, we'd have people come in and make hundreds of cookies and desserts and stuff for all these people. We'd bring in couches so everybody could feel the energy, put up tents. We'd have an overnight party. Psychedelics would be given out at midnight. I'd give a free breakfast to everybody in the morning who was still standing. We called it a survivor's breakfast. So everybody knew it was just like a, a no-holds-barred wild party all the way through. When we moved it to Santa Rosa, it was like, how are we going to maintain that, that feeling? And so the first few years until the county wouldn't let me do it anymore, I'd go down and I'd go to Salvation Army and I'd buy over 100 couches. And I'd bring in couches and put them all over the place and make it feel like you were at home. And uh, we'd get all these organic decorations and put stuff all over the place and just I'd go to great lengths to really make it really, really cool, give out entries to everybody. But, you know, it really, as it grew... Everybody got is with infectious, and so all of our volunteers spread that culture, and all the vendors and sponsors carried that. I've had people come over from the East Coast all the time. They come up and say, you know, we thought we wouldn't really welcome, but we come to the Emerald Cup, and everybody makes us feel like we're at home. So I think it's the whole community. You know, it's a gathering of the tribe for the annual fall harvest, and everybody's just in a festive mood, and it's in a great space, and the whole community conveys that to all the attendees coming. And so everybody feels welcome, and they just all feel like they're part of a special, magical moment. And uh, I'm really proud of everybody for their part in really uh, making that reality. And I know I've mentioned it to you before, just at the tw uh, 2018 Emerald Cup, you know, it, it rained and you guys had umbrellas literally just out for people to take to make sure that they didn't get wet. And it was kind of ran on an honor system. I mean, you just wouldn't see that at any other event. And I, I, it's something that is a fond memory of mine that I think helps solidify exactly why the Emerald Cup is as, as special as it is. You guys obviously are very big on regenerative farming practices and making sure that it's a sustainable industry. When you're taking a look at green initiatives, there are other markets currently coming online that could benefit from that knowledge that maybe haven't attended the Emerald Cup, you know, say in Oklahoma, obviously, where things are proliferating or other Midwestern or East Coast states. What advice would you have for those emerging markets on how to make sure that they can be sustainable as well? Well, the testing was a big thing. We brought SC Labs in. Uh, they came into first show 10 years ago, and people weren't sure why they were there, because why would we need testing for our industry? Then the next couple of years, when we started testing for THC and then terpenes, and we got into all the chemical analysis for pesticides and stuff, we, we found that a lot of people weren't doing best practices. There were a lot of things that were failing, and it was a wake-up call for the industry. So I think testing early on and letting people really know that they've got to do best practices really counts. I think teaching people and educating them that organic flowers and products are going to be better medicine and better products for the consumers. They're going to taste better. They're going to smell better. They're going to look better. And that's just proven. So I think that's a really big part of it. And they can not make the mistakes that we did, uh, toxifying our creeks and our streams 
and a lot of things that people did up here, which brings in the fishing game and a lot of the uh, water boards and whatnot. And then you start getting heavy regulation and heavy-handed stuff. So it, it's really um, teaching people and, and educating them to really taking care of their lands and being stewards of it. There's a documentary out called Kiss the Ground, and they took uh, you know hundreds of thousands of acres in China, some of the oldest farmland that they'd, they'd ruined, and they started using regenerative farm practices, and they proved that you could restore that land. It was really an eye-opening thing for me to see because I've always understood regenerative farming practices, but at that level to see what's possible means that we can go across the Midwest, we can go across this whole country and regenerate this fallow ground that we've toxified with all these pesticides and chemicals and and save the animals and the frogs and the insects and the, the people from the devastation that comes with using those kinds of practices. So, you know, it's going to come across in Oklahoma. It's going to go everywhere. Regenerative farming is what the name of the game is. Uh, sustainable farming, we have got to go in there and do that. And I'm really proud that the Emerald Cup has always been organic. And as the bar got raised, we moved it into regenerative farming practices so we can really teach people. And it's critical. Yeah. And the cannabis that goes into the Emerald Cup is, you know, clearly for anybody who's ever attended the cup is, is the best cannabis, some of the best cannabis in the world. And it's, you know, most of it is, is all out. I mean, all of it's all outdoor organic grown to the highest standards. When you're looking at those criteria, though, for cannabis, what are the criteria for the selection process and what makes the cut for the Emerald Cup? Because, I mean, it's, it's such a fantastic product. Each of the winners, obviously winners in more than just California, for sure, in terms of genetics. Well, there's a number of things in there. You know, if you look back at the winners over the time, first of all, you know, I had a guy come out with 28% THC years ago and said he's going to win the cup. And I said, you're not going to win the cup. I bet you a hundred bucks. And he said, why? Because I said, the THC has never won the cup. It's always been a combination of the cannabinoids and the terpenes that make something special, whether, you know, you go back and, you know, the runs, you go back and over the years, the different flavors, the different things people have gone for. It's not just OGs like it was in the beginning. The beginning, it was a lot of fuels. Now, you know, you see the Skittles and you got cookies and you got your gelatos, you got all the crosses coming in. And so you really got to find a unique cultivar that really uh, the judges should see that uniqueness. But now in addition to that, if you look at the winners over the years, Derek, who's won more times at the Cup than anybody, I think he's got 17 awards, he hand waters his plants while he prays over them. And I tell people, they come in, I said, you show me a farm boy from the Midwest who loves growing tomatoes and pumpkins, and that guy's going to be a good cannabis farmer because he loves growing things, okay? And it's like Derek brings that reverence. You talk about, you know, mom's home cooking, the soup, you know, why is it? Because they put that love into it. And there's something beyond just planting something and growing it. There's the love and the reverence you have for it. And if you look at Mark, you know, the Green Shock, and, and you look at... Uh, you know, Jason Ridgeline, these people all love cannabis. They love farming and growing. Me and Gene, all of them, you know. And uh, Jackson, you know, you got people that really love it. So if you, if you want to do it right, you can't go in there thinking for money and you can't go in there thinking for glory. You got to do something that makes you proud, that you want to do something really special. And you can see that in, in all the winners and stuff. They're really uh, doing something that they're really proud of and they're doing it the right way. So well, I tell them it's the reverence, really. It's bringing reverence to it. Yeah, I was going to say tender love and care. I mean, in anything that you do, I think is that special sauce, especially when it comes to farming. I mean, it's it's almost an art as much as it is a science. And a lot of these farmers that are putting out genetics, I mean, people come from all over the country to the Emerald Cup to try to understand better genetics. I mean, the, the races for the new drops every single year are just intense to see the lines. But I have to ask, you know, and I'm, I got to put you a little bit on the spot. You know, if you had to pick one of the winners across all of the years, what was your favorite winner and why? Oh, boy. 
there's there's so many that have come across. That is such a that is such a that is a tough one going back. <laughs> going back, the first winner was a purple cushion. It was grown by an 86 year old man. His his son gave him the clone, and uh, he gave us the award because he said he was going to be dead before he ever ever got to utilize it. So we still have that first prize. And that purple cush was a, an early on version of back then. Everybody wanted perps and the purple in the Bay Area, but then down south it was all the OGs and the fuels. And this was a, uh, the first one of the hybrids where they took those fuels and OG and mixed it with the purple. And it was called a purple cush. And it was phenomenal because it had the terpenes and it had the high. And that really was the beginning of, okay, it's not really just the perps on the one side with people in the Northern California really wanted or the fuels down south. It was the combination of the terpenes and the high. And so that purple kush was really something, and it was very strong. I saw, as soon as I saw it, I knew it was the winner because it just was heads and bubs and you know, everything else. But I'll tell you what, there's been a lot, a lot of great product over the years. Uh, every year it's you know, wonderful to, to see uh, the new varieties, and the genetics coming in are phenomenal. You know, you started with Leo and Aficionado you know, back in the day, and uh, you look and see that for a while, you know, John Vergato, who was publisher of Skunk Magazine before they busted him for being the international seed dealer he was, he came out and wanted to really look into genetics. But, you know, it got to the point where for a long time, if you didn't have a fuel, you couldn't sell it. If it wasn't an OG, if it wasn't a Sour D or something, you'd have a hard time selling it. And so it started restricting all the genetic diversity because people really needed to get those. And over the last seven, eight, nine years, to see that diversity come back and everybody looking for the next cookies, you know, the next Skittles, the crosses, like all the versions of the cakes and the runts and everything. It's so diverse now, I can't even keep up with it. I'm so busy and I'm writing and stuff. And I look at, there's like so many new strains. I have to spend every day of the whole year getting nothing but high just to check all the new varietals and cultivars that are coming out. It's just so phenomenal. And it makes me excited for the future. You know, it's not going to be restricted. It's it's limitless. And uh, everybody's really getting into it. And it's it's really a, a fun, fun thing. And two things you had back, that leaf blower. That leaf blower is the moto. That got more traction than anything we've ever done with you in that photo. We got in so much trouble from the county fairgrounds and whatnot because of that. It's like allowing what they're calling a dangerous piece of equipment in there. But it was people <laughs> love that picture. They, they will never get enough of that picture. And uh, the uh, umbrellas that you're talking about, that was really a, a special piece. We put it, we put in flooring. We spent 200000 in flooring so every handicapped person could move around easily and there'd be spongy flooring so the vendors wouldn't get tired during the day standing on hard ground. And uh, I couldn't I was I couldn't imagine. Who spends 220000 on flooring? And I went out and saw this stuff, and they wove it through all the tents and whatnot. And the handicapped people came up to us and said they'd never had an experience where they could go everywhere and be part of it. And then we hired a special handicap crew uh, to take care of them all. And we had a couple hundred different handicapped people come through that were able to have an experience that seeing the faces and, and the joy and stuff, it, it was worth every penny of it uh, just to see that. So that's what I'm saying. Our crew goes to that kind of length because it's like, okay, what are we going to make that's, that's special? People really feel like they're loved. And then, and then they put that love out to everybody else. So the whole thing's a well, wonderful I experience for me. I was gonna say that 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 picture I definitely because I was um I was still at I believe that picture was taken day one of the Emerald Cup and then I was still there on day two when my phone started exploding I think I was getting about thirty text messages a minute saying hey by the way check the LA Times but yeah no I mean like I said you know experiencing the Emerald Cup is almost a spiritual event for cannabis aficionados, people that are consider themselves connoisseurs and I think that people that haven't experienced what the Cannabis Cup is have really missed out. And uh, like I said, I would encourage anybody who hasn't actually attended a cannabis, an Emerald Cup before for the cannabis industry or not, whether you're just curious about cannabis for medicine or, you know, even for 
for just from a scientific standpoint. I mean, just seeing the different genetics that exist at the Emerald Cup is is just phenomenal. Now you have expanded what the Emerald Cup is, especially in 2018. I know you guys added the Willie Nelson Award. I'm kind of curious, you know, because Willie Nelson is obviously one of the most prolific advocates for the cannabis uh, industry. He's been doing it for a very long time. How did that come about? And what was the determination that Willie Nelson was the guy? Well, we've gone through and done a lot of the lifetime, lifelong activists and people have been in the industry, you know, Debbie Goldsbury and Valerie Correll and just all these wonderful people and Pebbles Trippett, Jack and uh, Ted Rosenthal. And then we were looking out and saying, you know, who's another oldster that's really done it for this community? And of course, the first name everybody came up with was Willie. He wasn't like a, a lifetime dealer, but as far as an activist, a guy that had got himself arrested several times because he just refused to stand down, who always spoke out, who epitomized you know, what we are all about and who we are, it was clear it was Willie. Willie had to be the guy. But it was like, for us, it was like, would he do this? Would he do it for us? And we reached out through circles and got a hold of him. And he looked at it, took some time. Of course, you don't get a yes or no from a guy like Willie, obviously, instantly. And he finally came back to us and it was the greatest joy in my life. One of the high moments of the the cup overall ever when he said, yeah, I want to do it, but I want to change it from the Lifetime Achievement Award to the Willie Nelson Award forever. If you guys are okay with that, then I'll come do it. And we're like, are we okay with that? (laughs) I mean, it's like, (laughs) how do you say no to that? I mean, how do you do that? So it became the Willie Nelson Award and of course, he showed up and uh, and took that award. And uh, it was—I mean, I was on the stage. I still got pictures of it. I was—I was barely able to speak I had to be on the stage with Willie at that point in his life, and to be able to honor him with that, and for him to come in. Those lifetime achievement awards. We did Dennis Perone before he passed away, and he did his wedding on stage with us. And uh, we've had some really magical moments on that on that stage with the winners of those awards. And uh, of course, then following that, how do you follow that? So last year, we thought the only person we could bring in was Tommy Chong. You know, you got to bring in Tommy. And uh, Tommy came, and it was like he was a perfect person to follow Willie. And this year, we're doing Winona with Duke, a Native American who's been you know, out there evangelizing for hemp and civil rights and minorities her whole life, and uh, just a wonderful lady. And Willie's agreed to come online and present the award to her. So that's a really uh, magical thing that's going to happen this year, too. That's incredible. There's very few people that have spent a lifetime in advocacy, such as, you know, people like Willie Nelson or Tommy Chong, just literal legends in the industry. But I think you're selling yourself a little bit short. You know, you've been an advocate for several years yourself. When you're taking a look at how the cannabis industry has kind of shifted here in California. What do you think in terms of legislation that has been done correctly and being a lifetime advocate yourself? What would you like to see be done here in California? Because obviously the patchwork system is kind of finicky. Now, I'd be curious if you had a blank canvas, what would it look like? Well, you know, I came out with uh, Pebbles and we did the first sheriff's debate in the country where we had then a law enforcement get together with uh, cannabis farmers to talk about how we'd live together. That was 14 years ago and we got Tom Allman elected. It went so well that we had the runoff. We had four sheriff candidates and we had the two sheriff candidates come back. And then the district attorney 
liked it so much they came out. So in the course of six months, we had the first time in the country and the world where law enforcement and district attorneys got together with cannabis people to figure out how we could live together. And then from there, we created the 9.31 program, which was the first program in the country where you could grow 99 plants legally with the sheriff's permit. And the feds came in and busted that program because they weren't going to have it because it was so successful. We delivered almost a million dollars to the sheriff's department. So I've always been on the road towards advocacy for legalization, even though when I did those sheriff's debates, I got death threats from the people behind me on Spyrock because I said I was going to ruin the industry. And I was like, you know what? It can't be about making money or personal greed. Uh, when people are still going to prison for 15 years and patients can't get access, it has to be altruistic. We've got to go for legalization. So I've been in there since the beginning of that, kind of one of the first maybe outlaw advocates, not just an activist, but coming from the outlaw world. And uh, I'm really proud of that. And I know I, I helped do all the other initiatives, uh, 64 I advocated for. Gavin Newsom came up here and promised, Governor Gavin Newsom came up here and promised, no matter what, that he'd stick to the no farming larger than one acre for five years so that all these legacy farmers could slowly sunset you know, away without having to compete against that. And then two months into 64, he allowed large-scale farming to come in, and it destroyed most of the legacy farmers and the small farmers throughout the Emerald Triangle and throughout this state, because now you've got 20-acre farms in Santa Barbara, Salinas, Sacramento. Now they're, they're in Lake County filling up with these farms. And Mendocino is just now passing their own bill because they, they stick with 10,000 square feet farms, quarter acre, but they can't compete. And so they're now going to open it up in Mendocino, which is going to be kind of the final death knell of the small farmers in, in a certain way. So for me, I would have gone back and stuck with Gavin and what 64 was meant to be, which was, I'm sorry, for all the large farms, and I'm sorry for all the big brands, you're going to have to stick to one acre or less for five years so that these legacy small farmers who created this industry and fought for it, went to prison, their families and their kids, they have a chance to make it. And so I would start with that. I would have never allowed large-scale farming like they did, and uh, I would have given you know a lot of benefit to these legacy farmers and these people to, to do that now. I understand that on the other side, for consumers, it's going to mean that the prices go down. There's a lot more access. There's even more brands. There's a lot of a lot of benefits to that. I understand, but this industry was built on the backs of a lot of outlaws and small craft farmers in these mountains, and they gave up decades in their lives uh, to do this, and they didn't get a fair shake. And uh, it's not right. I got a lot of blame for that. People have come after me hard saying I voted for 64 and advocated for it, but I didn't advocate for what Gavin Newsom said and did, and that's why I signed for his recall, even though I voted for Gavin, because he lied to all of us, and it's not okay. Well, when you're taking a look at the industry and kind of how it's evolved since 64, especially as far as craft cannabis is concerned, and you're looking at the Northern California communities, the latest fights seem to be between, at least as far as I'm, I'm seeing, has been between uh, the wine farmers or the wine communities, say in Santa Barbara, or for instance, those other types of, well, mainly the wineries. I mean, you're, you're taking a look at people saying, okay, well, you're pollinating my crops. And then you go back on the other side, there's pesticide runoff. Do you see maybe a placation between those two industries? I mean, obviously we have uh, wine tourism. Do you eventually see an industry where there is craft farming tourism or just general farming tourism in Northern California? Oh, no. Tourism is going to be a big, big business. It's already coming in. They're going to, as soon as we get done with COVID, that's going to be a huge uh, thing. The reason why the vineyards and the traditional farming communities don't like cannabis is because we're held to standards that are 100 times more stringent than they are. 
they don't have to worry about their runoff or what they do. They can spray all kinds of toxic chemicals on their plants, and we have right. to be clean. And so you're down there in Salinas or Santa Barbara, and these farms next to you are just viewing toxic shit all over the broccoli and all over the food crops and everything, the vineyards and whatnot, and we can't get away with that. So we're suing them, and we're seeing issues come in there. And, of course, the vineyards and all the other traditional industries are like, look, we don't want to be judged like cannabis people because then we'll all fail. Well, excuse me, the right. bottom line is whoever gave those industries a pass to put all that toxic stuff on our food and our, and our grapes and whatnot, how did we ever allow them to do that? Because cannabis people shouldn't be given a break, but the other industries should have to live up to that bar too. So that's why they haven't wanted to be their cannabis people. Now in Mendocino and a lot of places, you're seeing a lot of these vineyards that voted against us and fought with us. They want to tear out part of their vineyards to put cannabis in there because they're making 10 times as much off an acre of cannabis as they are off a set of, of grapes. So it's changed really quickly, and, uh, and it's an amazing thing that's uh, taking place. There is going to be a merging of the industries. It's going to come together, and it's going to come to a head because they're going to have to figure out, are we going to make cannabis people open to living the way the, the rest of farming is, or are we going to make traditional farming rise up and start cleaning up their act too? Cannabis is really making everybody look at what we've allowed in farming for the last 100 years. It goes back to the whole regenerated farming thing. We've allowed such toxic farming across this country, and it's poisoned all these workers and all these humans and all the life on the planet, and it's just time to stop. We've got to clean it up. Do you ever see maybe the traditional market industries, you know, such as the vineyards taking on some of the cannabis regenerative practices that are being done up in Northern California? Oh, they all are going to. You, if you see that documentary, Kiss the Ground, they're doing it now in the traditional farms in the Midwest. And they're seeing that um, we're going to need to do this because we've destroyed the ground. You can only grow with toxic chemicals for so long. You're killing all the biology, all the living entities in there and the mycelium network and everything. And it doesn't live. It's not sustainable. You have to put more and more on there, and it doesn't work. You can't go the way of Roundup and Monsanto because they're destroying the world with that. So we're going to have to go back to regenerative farming practices, and we're leading the way in cannabis, and I'm very proud of that. And people like John Rulak, who put together Kiss the Ground and these other farmers that are showing now with regenerative farming practices what's possible, uh, they're going to definitely have to go back to that because we can't go on the way we are or we're going to poison the rest of the earth, and we're not going to live here anymore. That's right. And I mean, and you guys are definitely the leaders of that. You know, the seminars at the Emerald Cup are some of the most comprehensive that exist in the industry as it regards to, you know, regenerative or sustaining practices in the cannabis industry. You touched on COVID-19 a little bit. Obviously, COVID-19 has kind of ravaged the entire world, especially the events industry. You guys are switching to a digital event this year. You guys, it's currently going on now. I believe it started, what, December 20th? What is the process that was involved for you guys in trying to figure out how to do this type of cannabis sampling for the judges in a digital atmosphere? Well, for a lot of the contests, we have over 40 contests now. For a lot of the contests, it's not that big of an issue because if you're talking about an edible or a tincture, it's not as much of a need to get together in person for visuals and to go through each one of the entries as it is for the flowers or the concentrates. Uh, the, the flowers, it's really nice to get the team together and have everybody go through it all and be able to really compare notes and talk about it. So we're still having the flowers judging in-person meetings. The rest of the contests we're going to do by Zoom, and it's not going to be as, as impactful because, like I said, it's not as critical for the in-person you know, camaraderie to go through and look at each one of the entries. Uh, so I feel pretty good about that. 
Our judges, we keep about half the judges returning so they really know what they're doing. So we have a good set of lead judges. And uh, my daughter and Taylor and Vicki uh, really know how to, to run that with us. So we're on a well-oiled machine on that note. So I don't think we're going to have any issue with that. And uh, the digital broadcast show, uh, we're working with uh, Social Club TV and the folks, uh, former folks at uh, I'm just think of that, forget their name right now, but uh, prohibited, I'm sorry, too many meetings today. Uh, you know, the <laughs> former folks are prohibited, Josh and Jason, and, you know, they're doing uh, Social Club TV, and they really know what they're doing, so we get the chance and the opportunity. Every crisis is an, op- is an opportunity in life, and uh, we're getting the opportunity to go across the country and across the world to be able to um, convey the message and inspire and educate people in a way that we never would have it before. So we're looking at this as a real opportunity, and we'll carry on from this year on every year with the stream broadcast because it's, uh, we're realizing what an effective way it is for people to see all the entries and all the winners and the whole inside of the cup and the culture and the panels and whatnot. So really, it's, just, it's been a really good thing for us on that note, and we're very excited about carrying it forward. And uh, we're going to raise the bar for a, a digital broadcast show so people can really see how to do it right, too. So now when we go to LA next year, we'll have the live version in person, and we'll also have the, the digital. And I was going to say the hybrided version of any type of event seems to be the future of events. And especially, you know, now being in cannabis is you have the international markets coming online. You have different markets across the country here nationally coming online. I think it's a fantastic thing. And I can't wait to watch the live stream. When you were trying to figure out how you wanted to kind of roll out this move into Southern California or, you know, everywhere else, what was your impetus to be able to say, okay, you know, Northern California, I love my flagship as you go elsewhere, especially as you're doing it digitally. What was that drive? Well, when we moved out of uh, Mendocino and the Emerald Triangle, we couldn't get a venue up here because we'd gotten too big. And uh, fairgrounds, it's interesting, the fairgrounds in Humboldt and Mendocino wouldn't let us in, but Sonoma County would. And people were like, oh, you're abandoning the Emerald Triangle. And uh, half the people wouldn't come into the event. A lot of the old schoolers thought we were being sacrilegious or something. But then when they heard how much business everybody did with, that, with direct interaction to the consumers, everybody wanted to join up and we had a waiting list the second year. And then, of course, winning the awards in front of a 15,000-person audience was a nice benefit, too. So people realized, you know what, this is the way to go. Well, we got the same point with thinking about L.A. Where's the best place for somebody to win an award? On a stage in L.A. It's like the Academy Awards. And where's the best place for a, a vendor to go and sell their wares? L.A., where three-quarters of the market is. So everybody was like, no, that's, we, we get it. We're ready to go. So there wasn't anybody holding back on that. We're still going to do a uh, celebration of the fall harvest and a gathering in Sonoma each year so that people can bring the latest genetics in. We can do the latest flowers and people can still have that, that communal tribal gathering. But the big show will be in March of 2022 in L.A. And uh, we also backed up the contest because there, there wasn't a time for judging with people getting the flowers in, getting them to the distributors and then tested back in, packaged back to us. There wasn't enough time. So they finally convinced me that it was the right way to go. So we backed the contest up to do the judging through February and into March and then do the show in late March in L.A. And uh, people are excited as heck. I mean, we were so excited about going down to L.A. this year. And, uh, of course, we couldn't because of COVID. But where's the best place to really represent all of California and put on a global show? There's no place better than L.A. And uh, we're very honored and uh, excited to go down there and uh, put that show on in 2022. Well, and you have been consuming cannabis for so long. Being somebody that has seen so many different strains and so many different genetics and so many different types of evolution within the industry, obviously 20 or 30 years ago, 
hash was the big thing. Now you're seeing kind of high-end concentrates. What is your favorite way to consume cannabis and what is your current favorite strain and why? Well, I now consume through vaporization. I shot my lungs a number of years ago and uh, I really uh, had, you know, 40 years, 50 years of smoking joints. I was an old joint guy, 10 joints a day. And uh, I just had to, to give that up. You know, I just, uh, so I started learning how to vaporize. I love the concentrates. I watched concentrates go from hash to where they started making really high-end uh, hash where it was uh, not even pressed. It was like not even put into a press and they were making it really just molded. And then I saw the beginnings of BHO when they were first blasting it through tubes. We were double boiling it and then hitting that with hot knives and stuff. I was part of the old school stuff. And, uh, and then into the live, live rosin and, uh, and then seeing the live rosin, resin. So I've watched that whole evolution of all that come in and uh it's really been a, a remarkable thing for me to really see i mean i love our durbin sherbert concentrates that we make that's a that's a really uh, amazing cultivar that we have and uh they came in for the concentrates and then of course genetics you know breeding for concentrates you know you had to really be able to find something that not only gave you the terpenes but actually spit enough because it became a lot of that stuff was great but it didn't give you the, the amount that you needed not with live rosin anyway so that became an old a whole art form in itself coming in there. And uh, I love uh, the runs that came out from Ridgeline. I thought the runs was a, a great strain, you know, bringing bring it in against that, that gassy, but the, also the, the fruit and stuff. I love that coming in. And uh, I love my friend Tony's Skittles, the, you know, the original Skittles that Tony uh, Mendocino came up with. I mean, I love that Skittles strain that they came through and they brought in. And uh, so I love both of those. They're amazing. Uh, I still love the sugary, which is an old strain that one years ago, my friend didn't like the fuels and he bred a sugary, which was a KC 36 times skunk. It was very unique. It was more of a sativa and light high, but it was, but it got you really strong. So had the power to really push it. And sugary won a number of times at the cup placed, I think about six or seven times. So I really like that strain too. But uh, this year we'll, we'll see what comes in there. You know, you see these, all the different versions of the cakes and the, uh, you know, versions of the runs coming in, and uh, there's just so much coming in Skittles versions, you know, 20, 20 varieties of Skittles versions, crosses. So it'll be interesting to uh, see what this year, you know, holds for us and where it comes from. You know, Mark Greenshock uh, last year had a, a guava, an orange, an orange guava that was uh, just a stunning strain also that I really liked. Uh, so I really do. But for me, uh, because I'm vaping and stuff, I really like to do concentrates. I like to do live rosin, and I like to do the finest live rosin in the world through vaporization. Awesome. Well, hopefully I get to judge at some point in the Emerald Cup. It's been an honor to talk with you, Tim. Again, you are, uh, you know, an inspiration for a lot of people in the industry. Somebody who, you know, does both the industry side as well as the advocacy side and somebody that really believes in what the future of this industry is. Really, really thank you for your time today. Oh, it's a pleasure. I really enjoy our conversations, Nick. You're one of the uh, the guys coming up that's really going to take that baton and, and lead and guide and inspire this industry for decades to come. So I know that it's in good hands with people like you and my daughter and everybody else. So I look forward to it. And we will get you into judging. I'll tell you what, next year we'll get you in there for sure. Awesome. I'll make sure that you get in there uh, and then uh, we'll see it. And uh, I look forward to seeing you uh, sometime in the near future. We'll try some of the entries. Yes, sir. And, and, and it definitely uh, look forward to seeing you in person hopefully sooner uh, rather than later. You're an, you're an absolute legend in the industry. Been talking with Tim Blake, again, founder of the world-renowned Northern California Cannabis Consumer Event, uh, the Emerald Cup. Really appreciate your time, brother. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Green Entrepreneur Podcast. 
To find out more about Green Entrepreneur, you can go to greenentrepreneur.com or check out our magazine on newsstands everywhere. Check out our Instagram at Green Entrepreneur. We're also on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and all other social media feeds. If you like this podcast and you'd like to hear more from me, Jonathan Small, check out my other podcast, Right About Now, that's W-R-I-T-E, to get some in-depth interviews into the lives and stories of successful writers, how they got there, what they learned, and what you need to succeed. That's rightaboutnowmedia.com. Until next episode, we'll THC you later.